I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. Thanks so much for listening. How do you experience a childhood when you've witnessed the bloodshed of countrymen, when you've survived a refugee camp, when you've left all that's familiar behind for a new place? Boya J. Farah was 11 when his father died and civil war erupted in Somalia. His mother and seven siblings would spend nearly two years wandering until they ended up in a dilapidated and disease-ridden refugee camp in Kenya. One of Boya's responsibilities there was to help bury the dead. He writes in a new memoir, Our Lives Seem Destined for Despair and Destitution. Boya Farah is a writer based in the United States and recently founded the Abadi Learning and Research Center in Somalia. His new memoir is titled America Made Me a Black Man, and he joins us from Boston. Boya, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. I've been very curious about what your mother said to you and your brothers and sisters when you had to go on the run from Somalia. We should say you had to leave the country. Your lives were threatened. How did she reassure you that everything was, in the end, going to be all right? Well, my mother was schooled by uh, a nomadic culture. My mom is resilient. She believes in words. She believes in destiny. And and she wanted to, should we carry, beside food, the day that she decided that we should leave, we carry transistor radio, small little food. But the most important thing we carry was words. Hope, hope is what we carry the most. She told us we'll survive. She felt that she had to get the family out of Somalia. Why? I, I know war had erupted. What was she afraid of? Uh, she was afraid of hunger. She was afraid of rape. She was afraid of the humiliation of starvation. When a mother looks at her child in the eyes and she has nothing to give to. That is, there's no any other humiliation other than that. You know, a mother looking at her own children and she has absolutely nothing to offer to them except walk, except words. Um, so she knew that anywhere safe, we had to use our legs to carry on. I was going to ask you, you describe in the memoir what those early days and weeks were like. Would you describe that for listeners? You you left on this day that your mother knew, you know, the family could not stay. What happened in the in the hours and the days after that? What was it like? Well, it was it was a uh, uh, it, it looked like uh, tragedies was giving birth to tragedies and tragedies. And it basically, uh, my mother was hopeful that some other government will collapse and the new government will reform and we'll go back and you know um, stay in our on our country. But it, it looked like you know the country was falling apart and people were fighting each other. Actually, neighbors were turning into each other. Two neighbors that knew each other for centuries. We're not divided by tribes, uh, mostly politics, political tribes, um, um, divide them. And my mother knew that if she doesn't get us out, you know, she'll she'll watch us get killed. My, the greatest threat at the time was rape. My mom didn't want 
my my younger sisters to be my older sisters to be raped. So she, we walked out from Odisha one day because also the war was getting closer and closer, and young people were giving out, you know, getting more guns and more guns. And it was out of control. It was really a tragedy, and she knew she had to walk out of the, uh, walk us out. How risky was it to try to get to the border? It was almost a dancing with death, literally dancing with death. Uh, and you know, um, children normally cry when they are in a in a safe area. Can, can children ask food when they're in a safe area? But when children, toddlers know that you they should not cry because they're hungry. That's when you know that the tragedy is in a, in, in a different level. It was an incredibly tragic story for us to walk out of Mogadishu. We went through um, two refugee camps. Um, it was, I don't know if I can convey that into literature really. It was, it, was, it was hellfire on earth for us to survive the unsurvivable and to get to Ken- Kenyan border and then, then we got kicked back. We were forced back to Somalia. So we went back to Somalia twice and look at death in the eyes and go back to the war twice. It's only the third time that we escaped. So when you get to the Kenyan border and you're sent back into Somalia, at no time did your mother think, you know, I've got, I'm out of, I'm out of options here. We're going to have to go back to our house in our town. She didn't consider that. Uh, You know, it's like my mother didn't have any any choices in Mm -hmm. the matter. She just, you know, it was, she was forced to, and she knew that she was actually losing it. She began to stress, began to knock, you know, she was losing her teeth, losing her look, she was losing pimples coming out from everywhere. She was thinning. Mm. So she kind of knew what time is up and she could die at any time. And it was a choice between, you know, Facing death or came uh, beat up by the uh, Kenyan uh, soldiers at the border, um, getting shot down. So she had no choice. She had to go back to the war once, one more time, and, and imagine that things are going to get better. Mm-hmm. But things got ten times worse. Do you remember the day that you crossed out of? Somalia, and you got into Kenya, you would eventually be on your way to the refugee camp. But do you remember that day that you left the country for for good? Well, for, for many years. Vividly, I remember that. It was, uh, we were on a ship, and the ship took us from Kismania to uh, the port city of Mombasa. And the Kenyan government refused us to let us in because there's too many refugees coming into the country, so they basically shut down the border. Um, so the ship stayed in the water without food, without water, for close to 30 days. Uh, I remember, that was my first access to America, actually. There used to be a, a TV, sh- I mean, um, CNN headline news was the thing of the day back in the day. Um, CNN headline news uh, actually put out a report that there was a, a Somali refugees that the Kenyan government didn't want to let them in and they, they pressured the Kenyan government and they brought us water and they brought us uh, uh, banana and and food. And then midnight, uh, uh, around 1 a.m., buses came 
because the Kenyan government, I guess the Kenyan politician at the time, didn't want to let the Kenyan public know that they, they allowed the uh, the refugees in. So they had to actually get us in in the middle of the night mm-hmm. uh, because they were forced to buy the media. The power of the media is what led us uh, into the Kenyan soil in a refugee called Uyutanga refugee camp outside of Mombasa, Kenya. So about around 2 a.m. we arrived in this uh, refugee camp where we stayed there. I mean, it was essentially, yes, it's the power of the media, but it's also the power of shame, right? I mean, it was the media shaming Kenya for doing something that was not just unethical, but inhumane, right? Yes. Yes, it is true. Uh, That's exactly what happened. I mean, it's something that, uh, if that didn't happen, I think we would have died probably in, in the Indian Ocean. And I... I remember um, the second time we tra- we attempted to cross, we were on a small little boat, and the boat in the middle of the night uh, uh, broke down, and we had to throw away whatever little bags we had, including um, uh, land deeds and uh, you know childhood albums. Mm-hmm. Everything had to be thrown out because it was going to capsize, or we'll throw everything away. Um, so it was really like. Uh, we were making decisions that is like life and death decisions in almost every part of our lives, trying to run away from the war. Because when you become a refugee, really, you don't belong to anywhere. Mm. You know, I've wondered, as I read your memoir, I wondered what you what you think about when you see these situations unfold in other parts of the world today. I mean, they're maybe the details are a little different from what you've experienced, but the overall experience for these refugees, a lot of countries don't want them. They're in these terrible limbos. They're in these camps for a long time. What what occurs to you about that? I really, my heart cries. You know, uh, I hate it. Uh, I, I know that uh, somebody's going through what I have gone through. And, you know, war is democratic. It doesn't really, you know, one, once war happens, they don't really, war just, you know, it's like a, it's like the wind. It's like a hurricane. And it, it kills everyone. It kills the soil. It kills the trees. It kills everything. And I, I, I feel for them. I feel their pain. Uh, when, when the Syrian crisis would happen, I wanted to write an, uh, an essay in defense of the Syrians. Mm. I actually got published mm. at, at Harvard. To trying to defend their Syrians uh, who are running away from the war. I dedicate even this book to the Ukrainian mothers. That's right. Uh, because I understand, I understand what mothers go through. Do you have a sense that there are people leaving Ukraine? Some have been able to go back. Do you have a sense that Ukrainian refugees are considered differently, treated differently than refugees from African countries or maybe some of the the Middle Middle Eastern countries like Syria by the rest of the world? Yes, uh, because race is global. It's not a it's not a phenomenon that is only isolated to the U.S. Um, I've seen the how Syrian uh, population were treated and seeing the way uh, Ukrainians are treated. They all they're both human beings trying to run away from the war, but of course the uh, the color of their skin. Uh, uh, differentiates the way we react, especially here in the U.S. So uh, racism is real globally. 
Your mother uh, must be a remarkably strong woman. I also would imagine that she knows that this experience forever altered, you know, your childhoods. I mean, there's there's really no no erasing the trauma of of that kind of experience. Had you ever talked with your maybe prior to the mem writing the memoir, had you ever talked with your mother about not just what she experienced trauma wise, but what what she knew this was doing to her children? Yes, um, my mother is, has been schooled by tragedy uh, in multi, you know, layers of tragedies, and she learned to be resilient. Um, you know, she was young when her husband died. She was young when the war started, um, and she's now in her seventies. Um, she's she's she has a lot of wisdom, and her her life. School. I always say that mother is graduate. She's a an Ivy League graduate from the school, the school of survival. That's what I always say. Yeah. Because she, she can tell you what life is about, and she can make sense of uh, difficult situations. Because for her, for her, time heals. Um, destiny is real. Uh, you know, endure. Uh, don't say I love you. Show the love. Uh, those things are, are real to her. What what did she think of the idea that you were going to retell this story uh, in writing your memoir of how you left Somalia and what it was like and then this refugee camp in Kenya? You know, there are some people who experience trauma, especially with a family that, you know, once they've arrived somewhere and and things are safe, that they don't necessarily want to talk about the details of what that was like. So what did she think? Um, you know, just like any other survival story, people don't want to relive right. their tragic moments of life. Uh, so my mother, you know, I mean, she cannot, she's not the learner of the language, first of all. So English does not belong to her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would have to, like, explain to her. Um, she also understands that my life is different than her life. Um, in terms of my life, you know, I'm an American I spent all my life here. Mm. I understand more of America than I understand Somalia mm-hmm. uh, because this is just a reality. Um, my mother adores America. Therefore, her insistence was, if you're going to write about America, say something beautiful. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Honor. you got to honor America the way America honors us. Do you feel like your mother... Um... The way you said your mother adores America. I mean, it, it's she's a romantic in some ways about America. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, because uh, as a dancer of, of of death, America, you know, and at the at the very last moment when mother is about to go into the galaxy of the dead, America opened up, mm-hmm. opened its doors, and the way we look at America was America was that heaven that star that we wanted to be in. And, you know, so America opened its doors and we got in and, you know, you, you have sense of love and gratitude that is undying for America. So she has that undying love for America. I think, I think an immigrant like us loves America mm-hmm. than any other uh, person in America, really, including Mega and all these people that are saying they love America. I think 
I think immigrants love America really because they came from us. We're such a tragic place and they look at America as that heaven on earth. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show and I'm in conversation with Boya J. Farah. He's a writer. As you hear, if you've been listening to the beginning of the conversation, he was born in Somalia. He and his mother and siblings had to leave when the civil war erupted in Somalia. They spent time in a Kenyan refugee camp and then came to the United States when Boya was just 15. He's out with a new memoir called America Made Me a Black Man, and he's joining us from uh, Boston. So as mentioned, you were 15. Your family was relocated to this small community outside of Boston. Here's what I want to know. And and maybe you've talked to your, your brothers and sisters about that. Before you had seen America, what what was your image of what it would be? Heaven. <laughs> I, Heaven? I, okay. My access, my access to America uh, was I? We were in a refugee camp called Otanga, Otanga refugee camp. It was super dark. There was no lights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had lights. We used, um, um, you know, it was it was basically no lights. And in the middle of the night, you lay your body outside and look at the, the only the only light you have is the stars looking down at you. And I used to think the stars to be America. You know, we had we were we had access to movies. That access to American beauty. I wanted, we wanted to be in the heaven. So I was, I was absolutely, I was dreaming about. Even if I'm going to die, I had, I had malaria at the time, and two of my brothers died. My adopted brothers died, and I, I remember every morning getting up, praying, and saying, "God, the, if you're going to kill me, let me get to America first. You know, because I wanted to see. I wanted to go with my family and be there. Then, if my destiny is to die there." It's okay, you know, but let me get there first. That's how much of how much America was. I mean, I write this in a book that America to be in America is to run naked in in the rain. Um, and you know, so it's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, when you get here, you have these beautiful passages about what it's like to be in a small town in America. How vivid and soft the lawns are i i I just you could really you really get a sense of how you're seeing this with new and i guess as i would say romanticized you know kind of perceptions i mean you were in love with it before you even got here and it seems like in those early you know those early uh months that it it kind of exemplified everything that you'd imagined and were in love with. What would you say? In, indeed, it did. Because think about it. I mean, in in the refugee camp, there was basically uh, a hellfire on earth, and then you know you get to come to Bedford where the grass is trimmed, and you don't even know who did it. <laughs> I've never seen people cutting it. So in my childhood memory, I still remember to this day that. These people are really kind people, and they got you into the America, and they're very, very good people. And God is, you know, um, because the concept of God is huge because you know, seeing I came from death, and so I'm like, God must be great. He must send his angels overnight to beautify this this town, and everything was clean. I didn't see any goats grazing. I didn't see any animals. The only thing I seen is 
dogs inside the houses. Hmm. You know, probably which was puzzling, rooms, which is, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, which is crazy, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it really matched that ima- image inside my head um, when I get to Bedford because Bedford is a really top, beautiful town. Which is Bedford, which is a what an hour outside of Boston, a, a kind of a bedroom community in Boston. Minutes. Fifteen minutes, okay. Fifteen minutes, yeah. All right, outside of Boston. I think you give us a a bit of in this passage about what it's like to walk around Bedford and how beautiful you think it is. You give us a little foreshadowing, though, of of what's going to be a fairly isolated and difficult adjustment. You write. I and my family are the tallest and the blackest in this all-white town. As I become more aware of this new reality, I sometimes wish I could touch their pale skin and run my fingers through their blonde or red hair. Our neighbors never invite us to the neighborhood block party, nor do they stop by for a chat or a brief visit or spend any length of time with us. But once they figure out that we are not going to cause any trouble and that we're grateful even to be alive in this new land, they begin to interact with us a little. This must have been so isolating. For as happy as you were to be in America, you must have been quite lonely and very isolated, at least in in those early months. Is that right? It is because the uh, one thing you know we the basic we had security, shelter, and food, mm-hmm. and the third thing we need was human interaction. You know, uh, you know, once we had that, we we want to, you know, friends, and the language is a barrier. The language didn't belong to me. The culture didn't belong to me. The food didn't belong to me. You know, the clean air didn't belong to me. America didn't belong to me. It's unimaginable for me to, uh, you know, communicate what I feel, you know, to them, except opening my mouth and smile. And when they, when they return those smiles, I capture them and make it mine and say, hey, you know, you know they like me because they just smile back. Um, so there is a loneliness to it, mm-hmm. the desire to be, to have friendship, desire to connect and talk. Um, that was absent in the early years of Bedford. And I would think to be seen as something other than other, right? Mm. Yes. Um, the, the, uh, I actually adore being other because I was... You do? You know, yeah, because, you know, at the time in Bedford, I was the only immigrant and everybody wanted to talk to me, you know, like I, as if I was a different, you know, I came from a different planet or something, you know? <laughs> And that, that attention to the child gives you a little bit of, a, you know, hope. Like, oh, yeah, you want to ask me a question? Yeah. You know, you can touch my hand. <laughs> you know, I'm different, but I like you. You know, those things. Um, uh, you know, so it, it was like uh, uh, the fact that people wanted to ask me a question and they're curious and they've never seen me. There's a, there's a beauty to that also. And the beauty is to be left behind, to be not, to, you know, to be completely isolated is worst. Mm than for someone to even smile, even touch your hand, you know, uh, those little things. Because also, uh, uh, color thing didn't enter my psyche at that time. You know, the, the black and white, I was not conscious of that. Um, you know, the Americans, I'm African, and I want to get to know them. They want to get to know me, those things, you know. That's so interesting, in my mind. 
yeah. Um, yeah. given what happened. So you did not, you didn't see yourself, and this is part of the evolution that you write about in the memoir, but you didn't see yourself in those early days as racially different. You saw yourself as somebody who had come from somewhere else, but was not seen as through a racial lens. Is that right? Uh, uh, because before that, I was drinker of poetry. and I belonged to my father's. I was my father's son, and my father belongs to a tribe, and everyone in Somalia is black. So, you know, and the way what I inherited from my father is words that says you're equal to every mankind there is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look people in the eyes. Um, hierarchy was not part of my, my upbringing. Um, I knew war, I knew peace, but there was no difference between, you know. Um, you know, so that is, that is my mindset. That's a nomadic mindset. You know, you're my enemy, you're my enemy, you're my friend. You're my, there's, no, there's no middle um, uh, there's no secrecy. There's no institutionalized racism. None of that was, uh, existed in my head. I was just a guest in the American landscape, and I wanted to honor them the way they honor me. But I wasn't conscious of being that I was black. Not at least yet. You talk about living in this house, and there's many of you because uh... – there's many siblings, and then your older sister has married in the re- refugee camp, and her husband is also there, and they're raising their one-year-old child. So there's a lot of you in this house in Bedford. Yes. And you write, yes. we have to line up and take turns to use the bathroom, but we have no inkling that we are missing anything. We are not yet Americans. Wait, t- tell me what that yes. – I guess I have my own idea of what that means, but I really want to hear what you – why those two phrases go together? Because now I complain about, now that I'm American, <laughs> you know, I, com- I would complain about, back then, the, the, the thing that I appreciate the most was hot water, available hot water, like all the time, and available cold water all the time, a fridge, to, you know, that you can open and take things out all the time. You know, those things was like something I didn't have before. Mm. You know, so like, for me to ask for more is to spit at God's face. You know, like God has already done enough for me. You know, I'm in America. I have cold water. I have hot water. I'm looking at the beautiful green grass. You know, the roads are clean. High school is showing me uh, love. Uh, I have my own teacher. I'm carrying a book. I have a bike. You know, all these little things that you took for granted to me was a blessing from the sky. And so I had to really, you know, you know, be in grateful and, and ask less because I, I'm already blessed. Mm-hmm. I was already blessed to, ha- to have that. But, but as an American now, you know, of course, I would complain now. <laughs> so only <laughs> when, only when you start to ask more, are you fully <laughs> American? Is it only when you complain? But I could have this, right, <laughs> when you have a perception yes. of, I have a lot, but I don't have it all, and I should have it all, because that's what it means to be American. Is that right? Yes. 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 To be American now is that, you know, you don't think about little things, and you want to have your own bed, you know, a luxury, a pop, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, a bathroom that you don't have to line up for. You know, these things are now present in my head. and But back then, it was like, you know, we were we were staying in a jungle, 
you know, uh, with nothing on, with no water. And now we're here. So what are you going to complain about? Uh, I, I was curious about this because many first-generation immigrants to America have described these experiences where their parents are either insistent that they only speak English and they blend in very quickly and they become a, as American as they can be, or the parents are trying to preserve this sense of the homeland in the face of children who are kind of as you've described yourself, just I'm as American as can be, and the homeland is in the past. I, I wondered how your mother thought of this. I mean, did she want you all to blend in as quickly as you as you could, or was she still evoking some of the traditions of Somalia and talking to you about that? Well, Somali culture is a nomadic culture, which is uh, a bit different. Um, you, you, my mother wanted us to stay, keep the culture, mm. honor America, be an American, but, you know, you came from this place. This is where you belong. You know, be both, take ownership of both, whatever is best of both, take ownership of it, you know, and that kind of, uh, upbringing. My mother encouraged us to speak the language, understand the culture, you know, um, uh, so she insisted on being both American and Somalian. Mm -hmm. I know you're. We're going to talk in a bit about the work you're doing in Somalia, but 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 I have noticed when you when we started out our conversation, you said I'm as American as you know American can be. I mean, do you do you feel the tug of you know your family's history and Somalia, um, how do you how do you balance that? I guess is what I really want to know. Well, it's it's hard to balance actually because uh, um, the the biggest thing in my head as a nomad is basically nomads are free. The thing that I relate to in America is the American highways because mm. the American highways are free. You get on the American highway, turn the window down, put the music on maybe Bob Dylan or something, and just drive. It's absolutely gorgeous. It reminds me of America. And it also connects me to my nomadic freedom, you know, above everything else, culture. Um, so that that spirit of freedom is already ingrained in the American culture. But at the same time, um, being black in America, you you know, the that, that freedom is missing. That freedom, there's, you know, there's something on the way. Um, and that the, the greatest struggle that I have is the uh, the curtail of of that freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know that that's something that I always struggle with. Um, I, I like America to be as beautiful as the highways for everyone. All his offering, all all of his children in the belly, inside the belly, metaphorically. Uh, that that is the heart of the book. It's it's your constant awareness that even as you are embracing and loving America, that you are that you are seen by certain elements of American culture and society as an outsider. And and I wanna read something that you write about that. I was becoming American. America was teaching me that on American soil I was a black man. 
So put some context around that. What what does that mean? Where did that come from? It means I was never an American until I learned to drive. And what I mean by it, on a black child, an African-born American that will never realize until they, they, they go on the highway and drive and they get stopped by the police without committing any crime. Any crime. And, and then the police looks for uh, some kind of an excuse after they stop you. That has happened to me. It almost became a democratic in my life. It became like normal uh, for me to get stopped. And then I, I already know it. I smile. I, mean, I really smile. Yesterday I get stopped. And all I did is smile. And the guy yesterday was kind to understand. Before my, our yesterday, interview? Yes. Um, you know, so it's almost like, you know, I smile and they understood my smiling means, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. Now what do you stop me for? You know, and, and they let you go because it's embarrassing. So America teaches you in those little vignette, you know, little vignette, little showing you, like stopping you, um, you know, uh, firing you for, for almost no a minuscule reason. And then you become a drifter. So basically, I became an American when I learned to drive. The, I, I get to see the real America. And when I get a job, that's when I get to see a real America. Before that, it was fun. Mm-hmm. America is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, those two things, that's when you actually get to know the real America. When you learn to drive and you drive, when you get a job, that's when you know America. And that's when I know America, the real America that awaits every black child living in this country. So you've described some of the interactions with police officers, and I want to talk about one of them where um, you're suspected of being part of a crime at a bank. But before we get to that, since this happened to you yesterday, tell me the circumstances and and what this officer said about the reason he stopped you. Well, he said I was, um, I mean, the one yesterday, basically, um, um, I, I mean, I think I think he stopped me because of the music. I was listening to Tupac Shakur. Um, I know, don't think I that's illegal, is it? <laughs> I don't think there's a... <laughs> There's a law against that. <laughs> After I left my writing cave, uh-huh. uh, staying many hours, and I get on, you know, I drove home, and I saw the guy, and he followed me, and I knew because you know you're conscious when you're a black person, you know it when I, when a cop follows you, and so he follows me to the light, and after the light, I already knew he was gonna stop me, so I was everything was clean, I have, I have nothing. So he stopped me and he's like, you know, you know why I stopped you? He's like, you know, I already know. I was like, I'm sorry, man. I already knew why he stopped me. He doesn't have to explain that to me. Um, so uh, I laughed and laughed and he was like, you know, he got it. He was like, you know, I stopped you because of this, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. Have you ever gone ticket? What was the last time you got a ticket? He said, Are you? I was like, I don't even remember a long time, you know, a while ago, maybe four years ago. And then he was like, do you, is your, um, uh, do you have any other record? Do you have any? I mean, he's interviewing right there to see if I mean, mm-hmm. I'm hiding something. I was like, I'm, I don't have anything. And I was also recording this, and you can see it. Uh, you know, I put my my camera up, my phone camera. So he went back to the to the car, his vehicle, and came back within like a minute or so. He's like, "Oh, you're all set." Uh, you know, why did I get stopped if I'm all set? Right. You know, but right. it, but you can't ask those questions because once again, I really don't want to provoke, you know, the cop to look for other excuses to harass me. Uh, so those little vignettes that you carry is almost metaphorically. Those are the bullets that a black person is carrying all his life you know those little knowing that the police doesn't like you knowing the uh, uh racism institutionalized and there's absolutely no face there's no person that you can talk to and say hey 
you know, please leave me alone. There's nothing like that. It's deeply ingrained in the American society. It's hard to get rid of that. You know, so you just have to carry those bullets metaphorically and, and hope that it's not going to turn into depression and drive you into the galaxy of death. You're listening to my conversation with Boya Farah. He's a writer based in the United States, recently founded the Abadi Learning and Research Center in Somalia. And he's out with a new memoir titled America Made Me a Black Man. I, I want to, if you get, this is a kind of a long story about this day that you are stopped by a police officer and you're accused of being part of some crime at a bank. But it also kind of serves as, I think, the moment when you, I mean, that, that gives life to the title of your memoir, America Made Me a Black Man, where you really realize what this is. So will you tell a, a bit of that story and how it happened? Yes. Um, the day was, you know, I remember my own mother. My mother likes to help other people because she was helped by many, many human beings. So she's a lover of humanity. And I inherit that, I think, uh, you know, that I love human beings as well. She wanted to help an old man, a recently arrived refugee guy, an older man who went to, he wants to go get med- medication from one of the, you know, uh, 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 big stores, department stores. Um, and so I parked my car in a fire lane uh, uh, but he was inside there, so I knew that there's inside there's somebody inside there. So the police are not really gonna mess with me. The car is on. I left the keys, everything. Um, by the time I came back, I saw a cop walking around the car, and I was like, "Hey, you know, it's me. I'm, you know, it's my car. I'm leaving. You know." And that's when he said, "Hey, you're not leaving. Um, uh, you're going. You know, you gotta let me know. You know, he started questioning me and all kind of things. And but as soon as I know that the guy." <laughs> accused me of something bigger than my own, you know, something bigger than me. I was like, there's no way, you know, take me to the bank, man. Before you arrest me, take me to the bank. You know, because I got a bad leg. I cannot run. I, I told him I cannot run. I cannot be a bank robber. I cannot be. I'm not that. I'm, I'm grateful to be in the United States. You know, there's no way I could have done something like that in my life. So I was like, please take me. So he took me to the bank and a lady came out and she said, you know, it's me, and I literally, my heart dropped. She she pointed I mean, to I you and I said, yes, he's the guy that did it. Yes, and my literally, I thought I died. And I, I, I just couldn't imagine it. And then another, another lady came out and said, it's not you. The tragedy of that is basically, that even though the guy knew at that moment that I am free to go, he still wanted to find out who also was driving my car, with the old man still sitting in the car. Mm-hmm. He wanted to actually find out if I have siblings so he can go there and arrest somebody else. And, that, you know, that was a car that I never gave it to nobody. I love that car. I never let my brothers drive that car. You write in the memoir, I never reported the incident. I never talked about it with anyone else. You see, if you remain silent, white people will never know your pain and thus be able to label you a troublemaker. You are safe, but in accepting an inferior status, your self-regard suffers. Did you have to think twice about putting it in in the memoir? Or, I mean, has this, 
Has it, that incident been waiting a long time to come out, and, and it's cathartic in a way to write about it? it? It was. I think it saved me, actually, to write that book. Really? Um, because it gives a... It really did, because I carry those, like I said, those are bullets, metaphorically, those are bullets entering your body. For And it, it happened to me so many times that I you become bitter, you become upset. And I thought nothing can make me upset after I saw tragedy and war, nothing. But this had entered my soul and my liver, my heart. And I, I know, I think writing is, is therapy in, in the art of writing. And for me to write this, I feel like those bullets, um, you know, came out into the pages metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was, it was, it was a good thing that I actually wrote. Um, you write that you learn in America that English really allows you to explore your love of language, which I, in fact, I think you say you felt liberated by learning English, which it is your, how many languages do you speak? I was going to say it's your second language, but probably more, more than that. Uh, it is my second language. I speak Somali. Yes, and I speak English. Okay. But I'm educated in English language, so I understand more of the... I understand Somali by because I inherited from my parents. And Somali is known as nation of poets. Hmm. And also the freedom, um, the, the, the bravery, um, a land with no hierarchy, you know, a man with no hierarchy in terms of freedom. Hmm. All these things I inherited from, the, from my father and my mom. But the language, the English language, belongs to Hemingway, belongs to Tim O'Brien, it belongs to Alex Haley, it belongs to James Baldwin, it belongs to all the all the writers before me um, who use the pen to uh, challenge what's what's broken in our society. So that's what's liberating about it. Yes, um, it, it's freedom in it. Right, right now you you just read something I wrote, and that's absolutely beautiful because. Our connection is the language. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all the way here in Boston, or Minnesota, and you know, somewhere in Minnesota, somewhere at a bookstore, someone is reading those words. <laughs> so those words are traveling globally, and there's uh, there's beauty to that. That someone's going to see us, you know, their story and my story, and be liberated by their own, you know, hurt and whatever they're carrying. So it's the language. Language is is, is freedom. That is to know that the is... language is absolutely freedom. I hope many more someones are going to read it after our interview airs. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> so much. That's part of the Thank point you. here. Um, would you read Thank an you. excerpt from the memoir? And this is where you talk about what language means to you and how you've inherited this uh, this appreciation for language. Yes, Ayeyo means my grandmother. Okay. Uh, and I lived with her in the valley when I was a child. So God bless the dead. She's gone uh, on her in this. My Ayeyo bequeathed me in this reverence for language. It was given to her. She fulfilled her parental duty by making sure I understood my role in uplifting the sacred love of language. When I was a young child living in a nomad in this distant valley, Ayeyo began encouraging me to memorize poetry and proverbs so that I could begin using more figurative language in my daily conversation. She taught me to use powerful imagery in my speech by memorizing poems so that it would become 
a second nature when I spoke everyday Somali. I'm going to pick up one more paragraph here. Boy, if you don't mind. Ayeo knew that my ability to use poetic words in social situations would determine my place in society, and that when the time came for me to think about marriage, my mastery of poetic diction and proverbs, the way my words danced as they left my mouth would attract the most suitable women. She understood that as I became more adept at using poetry in everyday conversation— other adults would take note and understand that I was becoming a man, able to take my place in society. Wordplay was not just idle fun. It produced genuine power and dignity. That's Boyafera's words in his oh. new memoir, America Made Me a Black Man. So have you discovered that Obviously, the wordplay is not just idle fun because you've written a very powerful memoir. But have you discovered that it also produces genuine power and dignity as you write? It does. Language is life. It binds um, the our ancestors who are living in the galaxy of the dead to us who are living in the galaxy of the living. The only thing I have from my past, from my childhood, my friends who are no longer here, who died in the war, is language, their words. The best way for me to honor them is to honor them in the written language or spoken language. So language is incredibly important. And it, it, it makes, um, it, it, civilization travels through language. Knowledge travels through language. Love travels through language. Tell me a bit about what you tell the the students at the school in Somalia that you've established about America and about that dignity of language? Well, I, I really want them to understand. Uh, uh, I try to teach them English, first of all. Do you? Because, you know, my, uh, the love of English for me is real. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want them to know the language so they can Google their problems. Uh, <laughs> but I really... First of all, they already love America. America is loved, despite what the news media tell you. America is loved globally because um, people, uh, their favorite thing is you know, the, the, the first wish, the last wish, the middle wish is iPhone. They all want iPhones. <laughs> really? Yeah, and they're all wearing that Apple logo. The majority of the boys are wearing that Apple logo, um, you know, iPhone company. So they really adore the, you know, American uh, companies, American lifestyle, everything about America. And the fact that I came from America and I can speak the language the way Americans do, um, you know, that's, they, they love it. They want to mimic American accent. Um, America's loved. I just want to make sure America knows that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't know that. That's you know, right. You know, the soft power is real. You know, America is loved globally. Really, and I'm being in a very honest way. Um, everywhere I go, Americans. I was in, I was in, uh, I was in, uh, in uh, walking on Dubai Mall one time, mm -hmm. just walking, and some guy came to me as a citizen. And I asked me, you know, where I came from. I was like Boston. He's like well, America. I was like, yeah, America. And he started telling me how he loves America, but he hates uh, how Donald Trump talks about them. Mm -hmm. And this guy started talking to me the whole time <laughs> I was walking. I love America. I love America. <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Tell them, tell them, tell them, you know, Donald Trump that I, I love America. And I have a, a direct dial to, to, right. to Donald Trump. You know? right. So America is loved to really. Sorry if I went out, went off topic. No, that's it's interesting to hear your experiences with us. So, are you helping yeah. to educate these boys and girls to become leaders in Somalia, or do you think that their their aspirations lie with leaving, you know, your home country and making a contribution somewhere else, whether it's here or somewhere else in the world? I really want to. I really want them to understand that they can develop their own country, and they can make something productive right there where they are, mm-hmm. and 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 also appreciate that I was educated by America. That I piece of me represents America. I have an American culture. I have an American education. You know, so you know, I'm bringing something incredibly powerful. That can change their lives right there in their villages and their cities. Um, in the long run, I really like to see a real development, not just small school, but you know, a genuine development, like you know, development of a hospital, development of a of a, of a real school. Um, you know, so I I try to empower them so they can know what they have, so they can appreciate of you know themselves and the land with which they belong. Um, um, that's that's what I try to do empower them to do the right thing. I thought we would close with um, with some music because I, I, I sense from your memoir how important music is to you. And I, I love that image of you driving on the highways and listening to Bob Dylan, obviously a, a favorite son of Minnesota. So what song, what Dylan song do you listen to and love to listen to when you're driving that we could close our interview with and tell me why? Hard rain. <laughs> you didn't it's even have poetic. to think about that. <laughs> no, it's so poetic. It engaged, uh, it engaged with somewhere in the reservoir of my being. Mm-hmm. Gets, gets, gets waken up. Um, you know, somewhere in me gets waken up, and I wanted to like, you know, I don't know, imagine and fly. You know, detach someone detached from my body and flies with the song. I mean, really, music that's unexplainable in, in the body. And so, it's real. So it is Dylan's Hard Rain. Yes. All right. Boya Farah's memoir is titled America Made Me a Black Man. We were talking with him this morning from Boston. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard And it's a hard, it's a hard rain are gonna fall 